That was terrible. I'll cut that out. That was fine. It was awful. Mostly because I didn't know what Sorry. I was going to say next. Okay. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, oh yes, it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it's always better before you start recording. Okay. And now, coming to you from the far side of the jet lag, it's two tired and weary travelers hoping they don't get concrud. It's me and Gary on the Kutrid Podcast. Welcome home, Jonathan. You're back in Perth. I'm back in Chicago. And Most of me. As I was just describing to our friend Amelia Beamer earlier tonight, I hate the term concrud. <laughs> I don't like concrud. <laughs> Why not? Because it's like Fiawal. It's like beer with an H. I mean, it's fine. It's 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 it fan, fans who like that kind of thing. But you mean it's yeah, like speculative it, fiction and vinyls? It's like sci-fi. Concrud <laughs> is like sci-fi. Concrud is the sci-fi of infectious diseases. It should not be used by anybody. Huh. I would rather have sci-fi than spec fit, Gary. I know, Specfix certainly, yeah, you're right. It's stupid, twee, and meaningless, and it's cowardly. Uh, cowardly? Yes, um, it is cowardly. Just... It's a bunch of people who don't have the faith of their convictions wanting to hide the fact that they're actually engaged in the act of science fiction, but they don't. They want to be seen to be doing something different. It's not only that, but it's a kind of diminutive that is no better than sci-fi. and that you're, it, it's, There are no other genres that try to... S- try to truncate their names. Sci-fi, specfic. If you were writing historical fiction, would anybody say hisfic? Hisfic. Oh, no. Hisfic. You wouldn't no, want to hisfic sounds, it sounds disrespectful, doesn't what, it? What would it be oldfic? Oh, yeah. What? Uh, yeah. Or deadfic. Deadfic, yeah. Horfic? <laughs> um, no, let's no. Let's just stop. We don't want to be coining new ridiculous terms. Our field is littered with ridiculous terms, and we need none of them. Ha! But one of which is Spon Crud. I'm sorry. <laughs> a number of people come back from conventions getting ill. The fact that going to conventions puts you in, in line of infectious diseases is not something you want to boast about in your field. I mean, well, we have to be careful I mean, as well what kind of you know, infectious disease we're talking about. Because we're talking about fairly innocuous ones here, like the flu or a virus, you know, not you know, something else. No, these are these are bizarre mutated viruses that you only get at science fiction conventions, which is a, another kind of we should we should we should. Is this stop. like bacteria with ray guns or something, Gary? It's it's like flesh eating bacteria. It's, uh, oh, yeah. oh, you had to go to Peter Watts, didn't you? I had to go to Peter Watts, yeah. Or uh, um, we were talking uh, yeah. to our. We should we should we should back up and explain I... to people that we have both recently returned from the yes. World Fantasy yes. Convention in Brighton, England, which is a yes. perfectly lovely storm-tossed uh, sort of gothic nightmare of a city. But that's okay. While we were there, there were some nice... nice... It was great. We, we had the world's least least successful Cood Street road trip, where we mm-hmm. went. We spent a week in London and had a fine time, I think it's fair to say, Gary. Where I we, think we did. Where we partayed with friends, and we would send out our love to all of them, particularly John and Judith Clute, who were fine hosts, to mm-hmm. Ellen Clagis, who was a wonderful fellow traveler, to good friends Garth Nix and Sean Williams, who are great and who we should have on this podcast very soon. And to Liza. And to um, Liza, who's our, our dear bo- you know, boss at, at Locust these days. So, yes, all in all, well, a, a fine time. Yeah, so we did a lot of interesting things. It was, um, it was very enjoyable to spend a week in London uh, in what was astonishingly pleasant yeah, weather yeah. Yes. Uh, for this time of year. I would also uh, sort of send a quick Cood Street shout-out, since we're doing this, to uh, Darren Nash 
of mm-hmm. Golans, who we, we had drinks with on the Saturday, uh, as they applauded the NFL, Gary, at the foot of Nelson's column, we sat yes. in Trafalgar Scott Square and drank scotch. That was surreal. Now, we need to explain that, because the National Football League is an American... Because we have a lot of listeners who don't know this. Lucky One thing. or two games a year, I don't know how many, the National Football League, American Football, the National Football League, does a, a game in London. They do. Uh, which, uh, which was, while we were in Trafalgar Square, was being trumped up like the coronation of uh, whoever the next coronation is going to no, be. No, it was more like some kind of like Roman thing where they were, you know, you're expecting the horses to come come around. Exactly. And slaves to be whipped or something. Yeah, it was like there was bad rock and roll, lots of cheap beer, mm. and people cheering you know, football teams I've never heard of. Well, and I have heard of them, uh, and it still strikes me as being utterly bizarre. <laughs> but but we, we saw a lot of people as, I think, maybe maybe you learned firsthand for the first time that if you hang around at John and Judith Clutes, you'll pretty much see everybody in the field. Up to a point, uh, and there are people who now, our, our dear listeners, are going to sit there and go, oh, you hung out with John and Judith Clute, but you didn't podcast. You hung out with J- Joe and Gay Horderman, and you didn't podcast. We hung out with Pat Cadigan and Garth and Sean. And Jeff Ryman. And, Ryman. You know, I mean, and also there are other people going, yeah, just, you know, sort of cheap, cheap one, you know, they're Coot Street people. You're just going clang, clang, clang with the name dropping. But they all showed up, and we all hung out, and they were great. And they were great, and... Uh... And we would have podcasts had we been organized, way better organized than we have ever been. <laughs> See, this is what we need for London. Maybe we should send out a call now, Gary. It is 10 months till LunCon 4, the next mm. Worldcon. And I'm in t- attending, on, on a, attending, and so are you, right? I'm planning on attending, yes. Okay, yes. And I'm going to be bringing my daughter with me, the, you know, Sophie, you know, of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And she'll be wonderful. But that means that I will be eyeing my time carefully. We need a producer, an on-the-road LunCon 4 podcast producer who can organize us and help us set up podcasts to record, and we can just roll in and then record them and roll away again. Someone to cancel out our own incompetence and failures? Is that what you're talking about? Our own attraction to the bright lights and uh, uh, good times, Gary. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Rather, than, I mean, we could do these things. We're just not gonna. So, <laughs> well, sometime in advance of LonCon, I mean, one of the guests at LonCon, in fact, is John Clute. Yes, long overdue honor for him, I think, and I think we need to talk to him at least once before then. Okay, um, I think he would be, and he's he's been on our podcast before, and is mm-hmm. is it's delightful. But I think you're right. We need to plan a little bit more in advance, uncharacteristic as that may be of what we have done in the past. <laughs> well, and, yes. Uh, and because between now, this is the interesting part of the year as far as I'm concerned, because we, we always try to do podcasts at conventions and usually fail. But then there's this period which I always think of as between world fantasy and before I go to ICFA in March. Yes. Of a, about four months, five months, when there are no conventions, or at least no conventions that, that you and I tend to go to. Yes. Um, so that means we're back on our own resources for a while. We're we back are. on thinking of things to talk about. Well, I mean, allowing, first of all, that we, we do, did come back with two podcasts. One yes. with, with uh, Paul McCauley, uh, who was terrific, and the other with some gaming chap, who also was lovely. Mm-hmm. So they will come out in the coming weeks or so. And then since either, well, unless we get vastly organized, we're probably going to shut this puppy down for about four weeks over Christmas, I would think. We because, could probably do that. 
because we didn't get the um, the backlog of podcasts we'd hoped for. And given what December and January are going to be like, I think it's quite likely we will be away for a little while. So, so you're basically telling our listeners that because we failed to record these wonderful podcasts in London and then in Brighton, we're going to deprive them of the entire podcast for yes. the Christmas season. Yeah. Um, unless we can work out something in the com- in the next six weeks before, you know, like I go away for Christmas and, you know, because I've come back, Gary, I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of afraid to tell you. I mean, I wouldn't tell anybody else, but just between us. Yeah. I, I've got to get 60,000 words of fiction edited by next week. I've got to deliver... Uh, the best of the year, but probably before I go away for the family um, uh-huh. trip in mid-December. And then also uh, be set for when I come back from the family trip, which will be just after, just before New Year's, to yeah. get another book ready, whilst allowing some time to celebrate my 50th birthday, which will fall then. So, busy time. Oh, and we've also got that recommended you, reading damn thing to do. The recommend well, we both have to do the recommended reading list, but yeah, the year's best. That's, that's a very full schedule. Yeah, and but and, but also you've got the wussy little girl version of the recommended reading list to do. I've got to do the big bit because I've got to actually compile the short fiction list. Whereas you've just got to do your um, own essay, right? Well, yeah, I, I just have to do some kind of an essay on whatever I thought of me. I mean, I have no responsibilities at Locus at all, um, other than showing up every once in a while with a column. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You're That's, trying to look at so, yeah. short fiction, and short fiction is a nightmare. I have no idea what the best short fiction of the year is. I never do. I look at novels and so forth and so on, and um, we make a, a list. But before well, we mm-hmm. before we move away from this, what did you think of World Fantasy this year? Interesting. I had a great time. I think it's the first thing I should say. And in retrospect, mm-hmm. I'm really frustrated about World Fantasy 2013, but for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And what I'm frustrated about is there are all kinds of people I'd hoped to see that I didn't get to see. It was oh. difficult. I mean, there were enough people around that it was difficult to find people. It turned out there were people who showed up for like a bar con around the corner and I never knew. So people like Jonathan McElmont and I think Paul Kincaid, who I would have mm-hmm. loved to have sat down with for a couple yeah, well, of hours, I, 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 I didn't see at all. And so it's mm-hmm. like, oh, now set in stone. I will find some way to see them next year but I'm, I'm disappointed not to have got to sat down sat down with them i'd like to spend more time talking to neil harrison and nick clark who are lovely people mm-hmm. and that we talked to about hugos and maybe we should touch on that in a little while about next year's hugos and what i think people should be doing there because that's obviously well hey it's our platform we can talk to people um mm-hmm. the convention was reasonably well organized it came with a preposterously large souvenir book that i left behind um as most people seem to uh there were Controversies around the convention, but hey, there always are, and I don't think there's much point in focusing on those. There was lots of nice parties. Uh, PS Publishing put on a great party. Golan's put on a great party. Um, mm-hmm. It was really worth going to. I had a great time. How about you? No, I think I, I, I tend to agree, and for the same reasons, essentially. You see a lot of friends. You run into people. I don't like to overprogram myself at conventions because I don't. I you know, I, if I had overprogrammed myself, maybe I wouldn't have had a Really nice lunch with I was uh, going out with um, KJ Bishop, who I'd not seen in years, mm-hmm. living in Thailand now, a wonderful writer and a delightful person. And we ended up joining Joe and Gay Haldeman and Jack Dan. And that's a, that was an absolutely delightful lunch. It's one of those little restaurants along the street in Brighton that I could not have planned. And that's one of the things I like are unexpected uh, surprises. I yes. had chats with people I hadn't planned to have chats with, like Lovey Tidar, for example. Yes. Um, and um, 
and not to mention Jack. So, so what I like about conventions uh, are the surprises. I mean, I like planning to spend time with yes. friends. And I could easily go to a convention and make no plans other than to yeah. spend time with old friends. But I had no idea KJ Bishop was going to be there. I haven't seen her in years. No, I sat beside and, her at dinner, actually, on the, yeah. on Saturday night at the legendary Howard Morheim family dinner. Yes. When, when we went to the uh, the Royal Pavilion in Brighton and we're, mm -hmm. we're in the private dining room there. And she's just lovely, though I have barely ever met her before. Um, mm -hmm. so, that, so that was great. And yeah, it is just like that, getting to meet everybody. Um, there's, just, there's a sense of family reunion with cousins yeah. that you've lost touch yes. with. Uh, and and you know, I got to see Neil Gaiman chatting with Susan Cooper, which was great. And I think, you know, I wish we could have podcast something like that to dilute so that everybody could hear it because I think some of those panels kind of items really would benefit with being podcast now, Gary. I think mm -hmm. people who don't attend the convention would get a lot, a lot out of it because some of them are really, really good and really, really well done. Um, there were some publishing people I met. There was Stella somebody, I don't remember her last name, who was yeah. one of Garth Nix's publishers. She's just beautiful, like, a fun person. Had a great dinner with her. She was there at that Thursday night dinner we went to, Gary, at, that, at whatever right. that place was. And then um, my, my, one of my publishers from Hotkey came down, and she was great, and uh, highlighted a cultural divide that I hadn't been aware of or hadn't thought much about lately, which is, you know, sort of when you're from the British Commonwealth, there are writers maybe you're more aware of than you are if, when you come from the U.S. So Probably. she had just been to visit Nicholas Fisk, the author mm -hmm. of Trillions. And you're like, yeah, yeah, Nicholas Fisk, I don't barely know who he is. And yeah. Garth and I are going like, oh, my God, he's still alive. Because he's, like, yeah. he's like 94 years old. Everybody thinks he's already passed away because he's 94 years old and hasn't written in 20 years and has written one or two immortal children's classics, including a science fiction book called Trillions. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of, kind of moments are just great. I mean, just spectacular things. And one of the, uh, the I was at the um, discussion between Susan Cooper and Neil Gaiman as well, and, and Susan was absolutely delightful, was energetic. Mm -hmm. You think uh, the fact that we have not heard from her until her recent novel uh, for a long time makes you begin to think, okay, we're, we're trying to recognize doddering old people, and we're not. No, not necessarily. Uh, they're, they're, they're not necessarily at all. I mean, very few, there may have been some in the past. There have been legendary stories about Nebula Awards and things where people were getting awards who were barely aware that they were there. Susan Cooper was as sharp and funny oh, yeah. and bright, I hoped that she would be. Um, and it, it makes you wonder how many other people like that um, who are that sharp and that entertaining and and yet whose work that influenced all of us dates back decades are, are still out there waiting to be talked to. Uh, we, you and I have talked, for example, about neither one of us know the answer to this question. We've talked about probably the oldest, most influential fantasy writer still alive is Mary Stewart. Yes. And I have no idea what kind of shape she's in, who's talked to her, who knows her. Uh, but she's one of these people who, uh, like Susan Cooper, like Alan Garner, like yeah. a number of people from that generation, completely uh, shaped the ideas of fantasy that some of us grew up with. Absolutely, and particularly historical fantasy. Um, I think okay. yeah. if, if I could send out a note to uh, World Fantasy Jury, next year's World Fantasy Jury, right, who will mm -hmm. present the award for some darn place in the North America that's not actually Washington, but is within driving distance of Washington. It's Arlington, Virginia, I think, which is a suburb of Washington. So it's like a, a cemetery, right? 
Well, there's a cemetery there. That's true. But, you know, the people in Arlington like to think that there's more to their city than a cemetery. I mean, I once visited Dachau in Germany. It was full of posters saying there's more. We've got churches, <laughs> things like that. There's, please come downtown. Well, Mary Stewart, sorry, Lady Mary Stewart, who is now, as we speak, 97 years old. Wow. So there's not much time, people, given the rules of the World Fantasy Awards, which say you must be alive, to, to yeah. recognize her. And I don't know that she would attend the convention, but in a sense, it really doesn't matter. I think That's it's long, long past. I mean, and if you've right. made it to 97 years of age, I really think you know, lifetime achievement's pretty fair, you know. And the, the Merlin trilogy, with that crossover between fantasy and myth and historical fiction, is incredibly important. So I think to get recognition for her in that context is incredibly important. And I think next year's World Fantasy Jury, I would call on to please recognize her. Please. Yeah, at least pay attention. To because you're absolutely right. Modern Arthurian fantasy after T.H. White's The Once and Future King really derives hmm. as much from Mary Stewart as anything else. Yeah. Um, um, mm, some of... Yeah, some of Mary. Well, Mary and Zimmer Bradley, but they, that came years and years after Mary Stewart. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so the whole revisioning, and especially the feminist revisioning, yeah. of Arthurian material goes back to that. And it's just, I, I, well, this we've talked about this before. Writers who don't get honored because people don't know they're still alive. Yes, uh, I'm sure there have been plenty of cases of that. And I know one of the purposes yes. of world fantasies, keeping an informal list of aging fantasy writers. Uh, is a very noble idea because there is this sense that let's we can't we can't consider that person because that person has obviously been yeah. dead for decades, which is frequently not the case. Yeah, and I, look, and I would definitely say quite seriously that neither you nor I are unique in making this call. I'm sure that it is going throughout the field, but having seen in the last ten years, I guess people become ineligible for the for the lifetime achievement mm -hmm. award. By virtue of past, by, of dying, I would hope that maybe somebody in the next, well, you know, six or seven weeks actually would get on with the job and recognize her because it won't be terribly long until you won't be able to. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and presumably the, um, as I understand the rules of the World Fantasy Award, if somebody is named for a lifetime achievement award and subsequently passes away after having been identified, the award is still there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happens with the Worldcon when our mutual friend Charles Brown was named uh, a guest of honor at a Worldcon uh, two years, three years in advance, and then he didn't survive yes. to see it, but but the honor was still palpable yes, and was yes. still worthwhile for all of us. And there is something else that happened uh, on the weekend that we should touch, touch on which relates to this, and mm -hmm. that is we all joined, you know, ten of us, around the Jonathan Strand Memorial Dinner Table at the World Fantasy Awards Banquet to see the World Fantasy Awards and the British Fantasy Awards presented. Yes. And that was kind of interesting. It was an interesting batch of winners, I think. And I've got a few little comments to make, so I thought we might quickly run through. Because I think Let's I run through them, because you obviously have the list in front of you, and I, do. I obviously don't, which is... Yes. Well, starting from the bottom, I mean, S.T. Joshi uh, received the Special Award Non-Professional for Unutterable Horror, A History of Supernatural Fiction, Volumes 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. And hats off to him. There actually were some other 
very worthy nominations as well. I was happy to see Aqueduct Press and Beneath Seathless Skies nominated particularly. So that was yeah. very welcome. A little bit of a left field one for Special Award Professional when Lucia Graves uh, won for the, her translation of The Prisoner of Heaven by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. That was a surprise. It was. Oh. I am now going to have a little bit of a rant, and I hope you'll forgive me having a rant. Mm-hmm. One of the other uh, nominees was William Schaefer of Subterranean Press, who was a friend of mine. Uh-huh. And I will say to you up front that I'm compromised because he is a friend of mine. But I think it's about time somebody recognized him for the quality of editing that he's doing at Subterranean Press and Subterranean Magazine. He's never been nominated for the Hugo. He's no, never been a finalist for the Locus Award in, for edit, editor. And he's been up a couple of times for Special Award Professional for um, the World Fantasy without ever winning. I but, think in fairness uh, to voters, most people perceive Bill as a publisher, not an editor. And there well, are very few categories for publisher. Well, that would be a very foolish misunderstanding of what he does, though. I mean, for a start, he, for a start, he edits four issues a year of Subterranean Magazine, mm-hmm. or six issues, six issues a year of Subterranean Magazine, including winners of the of the Hugo, the World Fantasy Award. Right. Uh, he edits most of the major collections they publish. So he's their major book editor as well, along with Yanni Kuznia. Right. So you know, I think really it, it's a major oversight. So I could get a little ranty about that. I won't. I think I'm sure Lucia Graves is a hugely worthy winner, and. I looked down the others, Pete Crowther and Nikki Crowther for PS, uh, and Vandermeer, Jeff Vandermeer, and Adam Mills for Word Fiction Review, and Brad Alexander yep. Saver and Sandra Costuri for Chosen Publications, publisher of Helen Marshall, all, a new, newfound friend of the podcast, mm-hmm. and all were worthy nominees. So, yeah, best artist went to Vincent Chong. First of all, we should we should know we we should clarify what we're talking about because at the banquet, which was a little bit confusing. The British Fantasy Awards alternated with yes, the World Fantasy Awards. Yes, they did. But we're not alternating those because we're just doing these ones. Okay, it's okay. Fine. No, we're talking I, about World Fantasy Awards now. Yeah, well, that's, that's what we've done in the past, so we'll do that. Okay. okay? Uh, Vincent Chong uh, won the World Fantasy Award for Best Artist. Okay. Other nominees included J.K. Potter, Chris Robert, Kathleen Jennings, and Didier Graffert and Dave Senior. This was, uh, there was also Kathleen Jennings of Australia, so I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Second nomination, and I hope one day soon she wins. I think in a major surprise for me, I'm not going to be sort of rude here, in a major surprise for me, Best Collection went to Where Furnaces Burn by Joel Lane, a book I've not read, but which must be remarkable given the competition that it mm. went past. I mean, it went past at the mouth of the River of Bees by Kids Johnson, the two-volume Best of Urs- Ursula Le Guin, Robert Shearman's Remember Why You Fear Me, and Karen Tidbeck's Juggernaut. So a really, really, really strong category mm. and very impressive. Best anthology went possibly to, the least high-profile book in that category. One. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm going to guess that the Le Guin and the Johnson were the popular votes. So, uh, let me guess. Uh, best anthology went to Exotic Gothic Four, edited by Dan, Daniel Olson and uh, pu- published by PS Publishing as Postscripts 2829. And I note for the record that Exotic Gothic Five just came out at World Fantasy. And Exotic Gothic has a pretty good history track record of. Of it does. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other nominees were John Joseph Adams for Epic, uh, Eduardo Jimenez Mayo and Chris Brown for Three Messages and a Warning, Jonathan Oliver of Solaris for Magic and Anthology of Esoteric Fiction, and me for Under My Hat. Best short story in a strong category, I have to say, went to 
Gregory Norman Barcer from the telling for the telling. Now this is really interesting to me because I think this is the first major story won by anybody from Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And as we've been saying mm -hmm. for the last couple of years, Beneath Ceaseless Skies has been improving to the point where it's one of the best sources of, if you like, mainstream short fantasy fiction. So mm -hmm. very, very impressive impressed. Was up against strong work from Jeffrey Ford, Emily Gilman, Kat Howard, and Megan McCarran. So very, very good stuff. Best novella. Um I'm really pleased about this one, I have to say. I mean, there are some very strong nominees in the category, Karen Warren, Lucia Shepard, Brandon Harrison, and mm -hmm. Sanderson, sorry, and Laird Barron. But uh, K.J. Parker won for K.J.'s subterranean press novella, Let Maps to Others, which was in my best of the year as well. In your best of the year, yes. Yeah. And it's a terrific, terrific, terrific story and places K.J. as the only person to win the best novella category back-to-back. Really? Yes. That's true. Uh, I was going to, uh, I mean, some distance behind Elizabeth Hand, who I think has won the best novella of world fantasy four times, maybe. Uh -huh. But nonetheless, only, only th there are sp specific rules in the world fantasy awards that prevent you winning for a series. So you, ha you have a period where you're ineligible. So like, say, Datlow Windling's best of the year would win one year, but mm -hmm. couldn't win the next year. So yeah. there is some reduction in, in consecutive wins, but nonetheless, only three people have ever won consecutive world fantasy awards really yes michael whalen won three in a row for best artist at one point before okay. they changed the rules and ellen datlow has won consecutive world fantasy awards by either as best anthologist or best professional yeah. or whatever else uh as i think the most winning person at the world fantasy awards. i think she's won more than anyone else yes yes i think she's possibly won more than they've presented it's remarkable so that was really cool and i was really happy about that um I hope it will make people sort of look at look to KJ as the quality of writer that he or she is. I was just emailed a very interesting file, Gary, that I won't send to you yet because it's a bit early, but I was sent Academic Exercises, which is the big 600-page short story collection that is coming out from Subterranean next August mm -hmm. by KJ Parker. A whole a complete collection by K.J. Parker? It's not not the complete, but it's a big chunk. It, it, it's 600 pages of short stories and novellas. And that is K.J.'s first short story collection. Hmm. And not many of people have published a first short story collection that includes two World Fantasy Award winners and a couple of other major award nominees. I would think not. Maybe Lucius. And yet, Sorry. Well, and, 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 uh, one of the fascinating things about the story of Let Maps to Others which we had talked about as a trend this year, at least in the year on the best panel, is it's a it's it's a kind of historical story about musical rivalries, which more than I mean, if you look at something else that it evokes, it's probably a play like Amadeus. Yeah, yeah. Does it need to be fantasy? Does it matter whether it needs to or not? It is. Well, that's the question that came up. Uh, we've talked about this uh, at, at several points uh, during the podcast. Uh, does it need to be? Does uh, does uh, Jeff Ryman's new uh, story in fantasy and science fiction need to have more speculative material in, in it than it does. Does uh, Karen Fowler's story, uh, the uh, the science the, of herself, the science of herself, which is essentially a recounting of, uh, of, of absolutely fascinating career of a of, of, of a, a young the first female paleontologist in England, even though she had no academic training. Uh, we talked about Andy Duncan and. Uh, Ellen Clages Wakulla. There's a whole series, and it's, it's increasing rather than decreasing, of important science fiction and fantasy novels that don't pass 
rigid litmus tests for genre purists. If that's an applied. Well, hey, hey, let's go with this. I'm going to coin a new term and let's see if it takes. A while ago, uh, the term the Bechtel test was. Uh huh. Maybe we need a Gernsback test. Gernsback. A Gernsback test. Does it pass? the science fiction test to actually be science fiction. It doesn't matter at all if it does to me particularly. I mean, I, I circle around this and have for ages and will continue because I'm not entirely comfortable mm. with the answers I get. You know, uh, we're, we're getting off topic a little bit and we'll try to come back in yeah. a second, but I don't want to we'll lose this. There's these two stories you're talking about, one by Jeff Ryman, one by um, Karen, Karen Fowler, Fowler uh, both of which are really not uh, well, mainstream stories about science. Really, mm-hmm. particularly surprisingly to me, the Ryman, which is much more factual than I actually thought it was. Um, is that stuff science fiction or is it enough science fiction? It's it's it has elements of science fiction about it. It's mm-hmm. like we're talking most for a lot of the weekend. We're talking about uh, the uh, Alfredo Cuaron movie Gravity. Right. Uh, as to or Alfonso Cuaron uh, movie Gravity as to whether it was science fiction right. or not. And there's a, mostly a consensus that it's not, though it kind of really is because it's. It just depends when it was came out that, that, that it's yeah. not science fiction. How important is that? I mean, I think there's the argument which is at the basis of Paul Kincaid's article last year that it still has to be science fiction and you're maybe, you know, to put a story like The Science of Herself in a oh. best science fiction of the year really undermines the purpose of a, of a best science fiction of the year because the story may not fundamentally be science fiction. I'd like to allow, think that it allows that having a story like that comments on on science fiction and that that's valuable in the context of the dialogue about the field. That's my feeling. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Well, now, I, think the, I think the other question is you have to send, you have to spend, you have to offer some respect to authors who believe themselves to be science fiction authors who write out of a science fiction sensibility, which Karen Fowler has always said that she does. Sure. Even when she's writing mainstream fiction. Um, and, 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 and to some extent, um, uh, Jeff Ryman has, uh, a lot of, a lot of the sensibility behind this came from, of all things, I think it was, is articulated well by the afterward that Jeff Ryman wrote to his, what I think is a classic novel was his redaction of the wizard of Oz is a realistic novel, which is, he basically says, this is uh, a realistic novel by a fantasy writer who fell in love with realism, which is another way of saying um, a realist writer who fell in love with fantasy. In other words, the sensibility of these things, uh, rec- readers recognize this immediately. Yeah. Uh, readers recognize re- reading the Jeff Ryman story or the Fowler story or the K.J. Parker story, which is a kind of historical um, uh, fable, uh, will immediately sense that there is some affect of the fantastic about those, even though there may not be material changes in the narrative that take us into another yeah. world, yeah. they feel like fantasies. And this goes back, this is a problem that goes back to at least, I'm going to say, Mervyn Peake, um, the Titus trilogy, where it's very difficult to say, eh, this, this moves into a fantasy world. Yeah. It moves into an unlikely world. It's not worth asking the question. It feels like you're in a fantasy world from the world, from the, from the get-go. Yeah. I think you're probably right. So back to the world fantasy. Okay, well, we're almost at the end. Best novel. Um, I have to say the result here was a surprise to me, Gary. I was in a situation where I'd read four of the five nominees, or so, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I might have personally chosen to go in a different direction as much as I enjoyed the book that did win. Um, the winner was Alif the Unseen, G. Willow Wilson's debut novel. Mm-hmm. 
and it's a, it's a very strong uh, fantasy. So I was pleased. I mean, Graham Joyce, who's some kind of fairy tale, won the British Fantasy Award for Best Novel, yeah, was a nominee yeah. in this category. And I, I confess, I'm mildly disappointed that The Drowning Girl by Caitlin R. Kiernan didn't win. Mm-hmm. I think that it's an extraordinary achievement as a novel. And yeah, I would have loved to have seen it recognized, but you know, that's the way these play. These things play. Well, it's won some, it's won some awards already, so it's not being exactly ignored by the field. I think, oh, no. I think uh, the, 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 the G. Willow Wilson novel, which I did not, well, I, I looked at it. I, I, I didn't actually read it. I didn't finish it. I should say, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful achievement. It's very interesting. It's, I don't think it's as groundbreaking in terms of the way the field is moving as, as the Caitlin Kernan thing was. No. Uh, I think uh, I don't think it's necessarily a kind of epitomizing some characteristics of an important career the way the Graham Joyce novel was. Uh, but I, I, w- I wouldn't argue that it's an undeserving novel. No. No, I don't think. No, not at all. I don't think there are any undeserving novels on no, the ballot at all. That was actually a very strong list for the best. It novel. was. I think uh, from Nora Jemison's *The Killing Moon*. Graham, yeah. some kind of fairy tale. Caitlin's the drowning girl, and the surprise nominee—I think it's fair to say—Anna Tambor's *Crandallin*. Right. I think you know it was a very, very strong ballot. I think the jury are to be applauded. They also picked two remarkably worthy uh, life achievement recipients in mm-hmm. Susan Cooper and Tanith Lee, both of whom attended the convention and were just lovely. Yes. Um, so you know, look, it was great. Um, it was a great set of awards, and I think people, when Neil Gaiman finally closed the the afternoon banquet, all went away happy. I probably should also say, and this ties in partly to our discussion and also to the parties of the weekend, one of the unexpected joys and highlights was that Graham Joyce himself was in attendance. And in good spirits. He was in uh, fine spirits. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, the, for those listeners to this podcast who are unaware, Graham has been very ill this year and has been undergoing cancer treatment and was in remission and was in good spirits about his treatment when we spoke to him. And I think I noticed that he's been nominated the 2015 World Fantasy Commission uh, Awards uh, Toastmaster, I think. Which is delightful because he's delightful and he'll, he'll be very entertaining at that, but uh, also encouraging, I guess, in the sense that yeah. he, he does seem to be um, undergoing treatment. He's undergoing some fairly major treatments uh, shortly after this. And my understanding is that those have a fairly good track record of success. So I, we, we wish him very well. We do indeed. Um, we also, I did not see it, but uh, we also uh, at the World Fantasy Convention had uh, an interview and, and a sort of reading by Terry Pratchett, mm. uh, which was, according to secondhand accounts, uh, delightful to see him there. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily... Um, the sense I got from people in the audience was that uh, there was not a sense that there is a lot of energy there. There was a sense that there is some, um, I, I, I guess, some evidence, not necessarily of the Alzheimer's, which has widely uh, been publicized, but just of, of, of exhaustion. Yeah. Um, but it the wood is still there. The wood is still. It was put to me over fresh. the weekend that Raising Steam, which has just hit the shops, the 45th mm-hmm. Discworld novel, is almost certainly the final one. Yeah, I think that's what we heard repeatedly. Yeah, Yeah, which is not sad. We might take a second since we are both lovers of the World Fantasy Convention and since Mm -hmm. we both took the trouble to fly to Brighton at 
personal expense and weariness and con cruddiness and everything mm -hmm. else. So you just mentioned the next two conventions, and I think there are, there are reasons to do so. Mm -hmm. Next year, the a thousand permitted souls who who wish to will be attending uh, World Fantasy 2014 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City in Arlington, Virginia, which is in the kind of vicinity of Washington, but not really. Mm -hmm. And what it makes that what stands out for that is that the guest of the main guest of honor is dear friend of this podcast, Guy Gavriel Kay. Yes, that'll be wonderful. And that should be awesome. And your friend, I don't know her quite as well, but lovely person because I've met her, uh, Jane Yolen will be Toastmaster. Which will be delightful as well. So, so, so we, I mean, I know you, you plan to travel to Washington. I almost certainly cannot be there to my great sorrow. Uh, but, you know, so because turns you'll life. Be going to I'll be going to London and going mad with my London. daughter and seeing Matilda and all that. Uh -huh. And the year after that, and I will not be missing this, please, everybody, if you're listening to this podcast, actually, no, this is going to be, don't go, it'll be a small convention, you won't enjoy yeah, it, Gary it's... and I will go, uh, Gary and I are going to go to the World Fantasy Convention in 2015 in Saratoga Springs, New York, where Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, Stephen Erickson, Graham Joyce, David Gray, and Glenn Cook will be guests of honor, special guests, and Toastmaster. Far too, I mean, incredibly late to be recognizing Glenn Cook, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm delighted that's happening. Uh, and for David Drake, I think it's great that Stephen Erickson is being recognized. And I suspect, though, and I've not, though I didn't get to see Stephen this year, that he'll be thrilled that Glenn Cook is going to be there because Cook's a huge influence on Stephen's writing. I would think so, yeah, okay. So, uh, well, I, I know because uh, he and I d discussed it when we were both World Fantasy judges. So, so th that should be... Probably yeah. a very poor convention that you don't want to go to. In addition to which, it's in a wonderful uh, upstate New York village, this yeah. home of uh, major 19th century horse races that really feels like one of those Twilight Zone episodes where you walk into the 19th century and yeah. never come back. Um, because there was one there a few years ago. The mm. one, matter of fact, that was the one... That was the one where I won my award. No wonder I remember it so well. <laughs> Saratoga was awesome. I mean, look, I shouldn't be disingenuous and try and pretend that you shouldn't go so it doesn't get too crowded and sell out early. But I think it's going to, if it's if the nineteen ninety no sorry the two thousand and seven World Fantasy in Saratoga is anything to go by, it will be extraordinary fun. Yes, um, it's it, it's it's almost an ideal venue for that sort of thing, mm -hmm. except for people who want. I, I, I think venues for conventions vary according to where you come from. Uh, people who live in small towns want to go to conventions in London and, and, and New York and Chicago. People who live in large cities like to see conventions in charming, rustic, upstate New York villages that have this vague echo of Washington Irving about them. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't argue with that. I mean, what I would say, though, it's also got great restaurants and lovely boutique hotels and well, part of all that stuff. Is a tourist, yeah, it, it is a tourist destination because of the horse racing and so forth and so on. So it really has the advantages of both. It has the advantages of being a small town and a sophisticated urban area with cool restaurants. You're also not out in the boondocks in somewhere like Saratoga. I mean, obviously, infamously, probably the worst example of this was Toronto last year where, you know, you were over the curvature of the planet from Toronto. You're so far away. 
Well, no, that's not entirely fair. Because you had to go to the eighth floor of the hotel to see the city the skyline. skyline. I realize that. <laughs> so I think it's but, fair enough. It was over the curve of the world, Gary. It's probably true, but when you say Saratoga Springs is not in the boondocks, from that perspective... No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the hotel is not in the Saratoga Springs boondocks. It's in the middle of Saratoga Springs. Oh, I see what you're saying. You can actually walk downtown. There are certain cities in the United States that are great for conventions because the main convention hotel is a block or two away from the downtown yeah. area. Saratoga Springs is like the, one of my favorite cities for conventions is Madison, Wisconsin, because yeah. all the conventions are in the same hotel, the Madison Concourse. Wiscon is there every year. Yeah. World Fantasy has been there. And... A block away, you've got a, a yeah. wonderful list of, of restaurants. So yeah, that's that that's something which we probably haven't talked about before, but makes a difference to me are the venues for conventions. Yes, uh, I mean if you look back over the last handful, Brighton actually was a very good venue. It was a little was. rainy, but there was great restaurants mm -hmm. and pubs and things everywhere you could walk to. The hotel was a bit crap, I think, but not terrible. Mm -hmm. Toronto was frankly a terrible venue. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't in Toronto, there were, you know there were some mall restaurants nearby and nothing much else. You could walk across the mall parking lots. Yeah, I did that. So San Diego was epically crap. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't there. Uh, you, you really won. I mean, the people were lovely, but the, the the actual venue was terrible. I mean, there are some basic rules that anybody who goes to World Fantasy regularly would say are they need to be followed for the mm -hmm. venue to be successful. You know, you need a great central bar. You need yeah. the hotel to be kind of focused and bring everybody together, not spread them out so you can see everybody without too much effort. And also what you need is you need the hotel to be hopefully within walking distance of restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Something, yeah. Yeah. Now, San Diego as a city is beautiful. Just as Toronto mm -hmm. as a city is remarkable. I mean, before the Toronto World Fantasy last year, I actually got to go into the city a few times with Elisa Krasnerstein. Mm -hmm. and meet uh, Guy Kay for lunch, meet Peter Watts for lunch, and enjoy the city, and it was great. So Toronto's legendary. Just the location for the World Fantasy was awful. Same for San Diego. It was in this weird resort, tropical resort mall thing. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, Columbus, on the other hand, Columbus, Ohio, which everyone thought would be on good, was spectacularly good. It was because, wonderful. It was wonderful, yeah. Because it was a... Small college town with great restaurants and bits and pieces, and it was in the middle of the city, so you could just walk. So that was great. Exactly. San Jose was great because the hotel was bang in the middle of town. Same right. for Calgary, though. There was that strange thing about the smell of cow dung out in the, you know, but that was a bit well, weird. Well, there's that. I didn't get to Austin. Madison was spectacular because that was at the same hotel they hold Wiscon at. So was right. yeah. Though, of course, I, increasingly people are becoming critical of that hotel venue, Gary, and I can actually take their point. I was having oh. this discussion which is only really of interest to insiders, so we shouldn't dwell on it too much longer. But and by insiders, I mean people actually go to these conventions because that's all it takes is the cost of an entry fee. But Madison is actually a really, how do I put it politely? It is a class-based event now. You know, uh, if you can't get up to the Regency Club, then there's a whole score of people you don't see, things that happen you don't true. get to be part of. And, you know, everything else, every other world fantasy, the only barrier is getting to the event. Here you have to get into the, you know, the Regency Club area, whatever it's called, Governor's Club area. And mm -hmm. that's probably a little bit less fortunate. It is. And, 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 and or you have to be invited up by somebody there. Mm. One, one of the interesting things about that is that you're right, there's... Uh, Conventions that tend to 
take place there, such as WISCON, are by nature egalitarian and politically aware conventions, which nevertheless, if you don't uh, reserve the room the year before, literally a year before at the end of the previous WISCON, you're not going to get on that floor. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of awkward. And yet, it's kind of really cool when you're on the floor. <laughs> but, but, well, but therein lies the crushingly evil thing about uh, cliques and insiders and all that, which everybody's actually protesting about, and in many ways are exactly right to protest about. Which is, which is, they're exclusionary. Now, they may just be exclusionary based on planning and awareness, mm-hmm. but I mean, I had an awesome time at Madison, Wisconsin, because mm-hmm. we had a great room on the Governors Club floor. And we could wander down to the private bar. And we never went down to the other bar downstairs hardly. We had a separate convention from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's not so good, really. Um, no, it's, it's, it's not really the best way to deal with things. But the, the egalitarian argument is that you don't get on the governor's club because you're better or you're more special. You get on it because you made the reservation before anybody else. So it's an it's an equal playing field for getting on that floor. It is, but I think I have to stick by the basic point, though, which I think is valid, uh, which is that you know, it's still separating everybody out when you, the whole point of this is to bring yeah. people together. And I think there's enough of a feeling, and I don't see it because of my personal history with the event so much. There is a real hierarchical thing to world fantasy. Something I'd like to believe well, isn't true, but it is. It is there. Doesn't something similar happen at World Cons where even you have more an so? suite. Uh, even more so, Gary. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be looking to tear things down and make people feel included. I mean, I saw a couple mm-hmm. of people before World Fantasy this year tw- you know, tweeting or commenting in social media that they'd found World Fantasy to be quite an exclusionary event. Now, my own experience had been that it was very inclusionary, but I didn't have a mm-hmm. typical introduction to World Fantasy, you know, coming in already knowing a bunch of people, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Charles, who introduced me to all kinds of people. Um, so, yeah, you know. And one of the things I um, have always... Uh, felt a little bit self-conscious about was going into a convention. Yeah, with connections to Charles, with connections. I mean, both both you and I have been in the field for quite a while, and I never actually went to conventions as an, an innocent fan, thinking no. I'm going to save up my money. I'm going. So I, I never had the experience of going to a convention being completely at sea, not knowing anybody there. And I, I, I and, and I admire people who can do that. Every year there are people who do that. Sometimes they. Uh, sometimes they'll come up to me and say, I've heard of you or something, and I don't know what I'm doing here. And then you can do some mentoring, but that takes uh, the, the whole process of fandom, the whole process of, uh, as I say, when you're a young kid saving up your money, going to Cincinnati or, or, or New York or London or wherever it is, not knowing anybody at all um, is is touching and moving and attest to a kind of devotion to the literature, which which I think all of us need to try to recapture sometimes. Yes, I think so. I would also say that whilst I don't know if anyone will listen to our call for the, the uh, World Fantasy Award Lifetime Achievement to go to Mary Stewart, one mm-hmm. call of my own that I don't think will be heeded at all is uh, there's one thing I would like to see World Fantasy pick up from Worldcon. Mm, what is that? I'd like it to run an extra day. Interesting point. Um, I guess I guess the reason I hadn't thought about that is because frequently when you and I and Liza and other people show up a day early, it feels like it's an extra day. Mm-hmm. We, the, the convention began on Thursday. We were all there on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, 
when ReaderCon starts on a Thursday, I'm almost always there on a Wednesday. So uh, officially extending the convention a day would have the advantage of giving more people an opportunity to have more contact. Uh, it would have the disadvantage of that little exclusive club you have on the first day there before everybody's arrived and you can talk to people. You just have it a day strong. earlier, Gary, the way you do with WorldCon. Uh, yeah. You'd still That's shop true. a day earlier. Yeah. Uh, it would work. So, I mean, yeah, I really, I mean, I, I would like it because it would give you more chance to talk to all of the interesting people who are there who you're not getting mm -hmm. to see in the limited time you have. And oh, there is a tendency, and this is perhaps what I did, there was a group of people that I spoke to quite a lot at this year's World Fantasy yeah. who I enormously enjoyed talking to, but it meant that I didn't talk to as broad a number of people as I might have. And I, I could name yeah. names, people who I wished I'd had more time to talk to. So that would be my goal. I'd like to sit around an extra day. Uh, that I've not spent a lot of time talking to people, but uh, um, I think that's part of what the appeal is. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you didn't get to talk to everybody you wanted to, and so next time you'll try to catch them. Uh, it keeps going from one to the other. Yes. Um, and, you know, look, we survived our panels. We did our panel on the best of the year, which was acceptable. I did a panel on dead people, which was the same as it is every year. <laughs> all, well, it can't be. Well, different people died. Well, different people die every year, but basically, we're all sad. And then we go. Um, the, the, I guess the awkward thing about this particular year's convention is the uh, the guest of honor having passed away before the mm. convention began. So we did spend yes. a fair amount of time talking about Richard Matheson, and a fair amount of time talking about somebody who had the world fantasy been more sophisticated.